Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass Nearly ten years had passed since the Dursleys had awoken to find their nephew on their front step, but Privet Jive had hardly changed at all. The sun rose on the same tidy front gardens and lit up the brass number four on the Dursleys' front door. He crept into their living room, which was almost exactly the same as it had been on the night when Mr. Dursley had seen that fateful news report about owls. Only the photographs on the ma mantelpiece really showed how much time had passed. Ten years ago, there had been lots of pictures of what looked like a large pink beach ball wearing different colored bonnets. But Dudley Dursley was no longer a baby, and now the photograph showed a large blonde boy riding his first bicycle on a carousel at the fair, playing a computer game with his father, being hugged and kissed by his mother. The room held no sign at all that another boy lived in the house too. Do you know where you are? I'm in another jacket. And here there be wizards, dragons, owls, owls, Dursleys, Dudleys, <laughs> small pink beach balls with multiple colored bonnets. Dudley's a baby. If none of you got that, that was Dudley's a baby. It's such a colorful description. It is. And I will, I'll, I'll give, I'll give that to Rowling. She does come up with some truly colorful metaphors. And that's probably one of my favorites. I didn't remember that she said that. But that thus far is my favorite. It's, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> Referring to a small little fat child. <laughs> as a giant pink beach ball. As a large pink beach ball wearing different colored bonnets. In, it's also a weird. this it says bobble hats. Bobble hats. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> And instead of a merry-go-round, it's called a roundabout. Yeah. At the fair. It's called a roundabout. Yeah. Merry-go-round is is very exclusively like an American thing. It's yeah, like I wonder. I don't know where those started. I'll have to look that up. I think the Chicago was World's Fair, I believe. Chicago. Yeah. There was a lot of things that uh, the World's Fair in Chicago really like revolutionized for people. Hmm. So. I'm fairly certain that that's where the merry-go-round got the merry-go-round name. Uh, I'm not 100% certain though. Um, it is it is interesting, like the differences though. It's like you have a lift in, and there's an elevator in America. I mean, I know the loo. <laughs> I don't even know if people still say the loo. I don't know either. I haven't. I mean, I went to London once very long time ago and it was only for a couple of days so every, it wasn't really there long enough to learn anything else every british man i know either calls it the pot or the can so i've never actually heard a british so, person so call it the loo did they say i gotta go sit on the pot like, yeah <laughs> that's funny yeah so i don't know if that's just because most of the people i knew from europe were hicks or what, but uh, generally, I've never heard anyone call it the loo. I've heard Australians call it a thunder bucket. We should ask Marcus. We should ask Marcus. Marcus! <laughs> Why he, are you he, yelling? Because he's, he listens to the like podcast. Because he room. listens to the podcast. I just want to get his attention if he's listening. <laughs> okay. Do they call it the loo? Uh, <laughs> let, okay. me, let me know on Twitter. Uh, okay. So it's 10 years later. Big jump for right. a single chapter, um, but... You got the backstory. Yeah. You know, that was the setting. So Dudley is, what, a year, two years older than Harry? Something like that. So in this, Harry is, is nine and Dudley is ten. And what today, I believe, is Dudley's... Well, if it's ten years later, then he would be ten. Or is it just before? I think this is just before. Isn't the vanishing glasses on Dudley's birthday, right? Is he's I don't either, know how old Harry was when his parents died. 
What if it was just before his first birthday? Very well could have been, I'm not sure. Because I feel like 11 makes sense, like that's junior high age, right? Right. So I feel like that's more accurate, but I don't know, I guess we'll find out. Because Harry turns 10 just shortly after this. Does he? Right, because he, he gets his letter at 10, right? I don't know, I thought... All right, wait, well, wait, let's, wait, wait, wait. Here's the crazy it thing. We're reading the book. Because you have year one through eight, right? Right. So if he's a senior in the in year eight, that would, well, I guess he could be turning ten. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, <laughs> okay, crazy. We'll I was to say crazy <laughs> thing is we've got the book right here, and we're supposed yeah. to be reading it, so we'll right, probably right. figure it out. All right, all right. Go. Okay. <clears throat> Yet Harry Potter was still there, asleep at the moment, but not for long. His Aunt Petunia was awake, and it was her shrill voice that made the first noise of the day. Up! Get up! Now! Harry woke with a start, his aunt rapping on the door again. Up! She screeched. Harry heard her walking towards the kitchen, and then the sound of the frying pan being put on the stove. He rolled onto his back and tried to remember the dream he had been having. It had been a good one. There had been a flying motorcycle in it, and he had a funny feeling he'd had the same dream before. His aunt was back outside the door. Are you up yet? She demanded. Nearly, said Harry. Well, get a move on. I want to look after the bacon. And you don't dare let it burn. I want everything perfect on Dudley's birthday. So Says Daddy, Daddy's birthday. Daddy's birthday. Daddy's Sorry. birthday. Yes. Can you can you give me a more shrill Aunt Petunia? Oh gosh. Like a shrill British woman. Get up. Yeah, exactly <laughs> like that. There you go. Get up. <laughs> give me like shrill British. I don't want to like hurt people's ears. There has been requested. That I hurt people's ears. Yep. No. Hurt their ears. That's I what they want. <laughs> It's like a kink. They like podcasts that hurt this their ears. Uh, sorry, family. family. <laughs> it's like a preference. <laughs> Not even sure if we're allowed to say that anymore. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do we take it too far three minutes into the episode? <laughs> Okay, I'll just start it over. Get sh and we can cut it shrill. Out. No, 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 stay in. Shrill, <laughs> shrill Aunt Petunia. I don't know if I can do that. You shrill. can do it. You got it. I believe in you. Okay. Well, get a move on. I want you to look after the bacon. And don't you dare let it burn. I want everything perfect on Daddy's birthday. You didn't go more shrill, you just went more annoyed. <laughs> Well, she's annoyed. I don't know, I can't, I don't do shrill. <laughs> Have you ever heard me be shrill? No, that's why, I'm, that's why I want you to be shrill. I want you to give us shrill petunia. I have to practice this, like I don't. This is the practice, this is what we're doing. This is why we're practicing. Give me one more, one more take, and if it, and if it's if we if we can't get shrill, we'll we'll stick with it. I feel like every time we do this, you try to torture me in some way. It's for them. That's what the people want. I'm pointing at you, by the way, for those of you not watching the video. I mean, podcast. clearly you do it better. Maybe you should be doing that too. Yeah. I, I no, because I, I have to be shrill, duddy. <laughs> <laughs> duddy is such a stupid nickname. Dudley is already a stupid name. Sorry if your name's Dudley. Um, but Duddy just is like, it makes you sound really stupid. Like a dud? Yeah. Anyways. Mm. You're killing me. I'm like getting all hot from how much you're making me laugh. <laughs> high pitch. Give me the highest pitch you got. Oh, come on. Highest pitch you got. <laughs> I Just for this one. Just for this line. And then you can go back to what you're doing. For... Am I redoing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, get a move on. I want you to look after the bacon. And don't you dare let it burn. I want everything perfect on Daddy's birthday. Perfect. That's exactly <laughs> how I imagine that, Petunia. <laughs> Why do you hate me? I don't hate you. This is beautiful. Harry groaned. 
say? His aunt snapped through the door. Nothing, nothing. Dudley's birthday. How could he have forgotten? Harry got slowly out of bed and started looking for socks. He found a pair under his bed and, after pulling a spider off of one of them, he put them on. Harry was used to spiders because the cupboard under the stairs was full of them, and that was where he slept. When he dressed and went down the hall into the kitchen, the table was almost hidden beneath all of Dudley's birthday presents. It looked as though Dudley had gotten a new computer he wanted, not to mention the second television and the racing bike. Exactly why Dudley wanted a racing bike was a mystery to Harry, as Dudley was very fat and hated exercise. Unless, of course, it involved punching somebody, Dudley's favourite punching bag was Harry. But he couldn't often catch him. Harry didn't look it, but he was very fast. Perhaps it had something to do with living in a dark cupboard. But Harry had always been small and skinny for his age. He looked even smaller and skinny than he really, skinnier than he really was, because all he had to wear were Dudley's old clothes, and Dudley was about four times bigger than he was. Harry had a thin face, knobbly knees, black hair, and bright green eyes. He wore round glasses held together with a lot of scotch tape because of all the times Dudley had punched him in the nose. The one thing Harry liked about his own appearance was a very thin scar on his forehead. It was shaped like a bolt of lightning. He had had it as long as he could remember, and the first question he could ever remember asking his Aunt Petunia was how he had gotten it. In the car crash when your parents died, she had said. And don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. That was the first rule for a quiet life with the Dursleys. Uncle Vernon entered the kitchen as Harry was turning over the bacon. Comb your hair, boy, he barked, by way of morning greeting. About once a week, Uncle Vernon looked over the top of his newspaper and shouted that Harry needed a haircut. Harry must have been, Harry must have had more haircuts than the rest of the boys in his class put together. But it made no difference. His hair simply grew that way, all over the place. Harry was frying eggs by the time Dudley arrived in the kitchen with his mother. Dudley looked a lot like Uncle Vernon. He had a large pink face, not much neck, small watery blue eyes, and thick blonde hair that lay smoothly on his thick fat head. Aunt Petunia often said that Dudley looked like a baby angel. And Harry often said that Dudley looked like a pig in a wig. Harry put the plates of eggs and bacon on the table, which was difficult as there wasn't much room. Dudley, meanwhile, was counting his presents. His face fell. Thirty-six, he said, looking up at his mother and father. That's two less than last year. Darling? You haven't counted Auntie Marge's present, see? It's here under this big one from Mummy and Daddy. All right, thirty-seven then, said Dudley, going red in the face. Harry, who could see a huge Dudley tantrum coming on, began woofing down his bacon as fast as possible in case Dudley turned over the table. Aunt Petunia obviously scented danger too, because she quickly said, and we'll buy you another two presents while we're out today. How's that, Popkin? Two more presents? Is that all right? Dudley thought for a moment. It looked like hard work. Finally, he said slowly, So I'll have thirty, thirty... Thirty-nine, sweetums, said Aunt Petunia. Oh! Dudley sat down heavily and grabbed the nearest parcel. All right, then. Uncle Vernon chuckled. The old tyke wants his money's worth. Oh, I don't know why I gave him a Cockney accent. That's weird. <laughs> you did that last time. That was no. I gave I gave Hagrid the Cockney. Oh. Uh, uh, uh. Little tyke wants his money's worth, just like his father. Atta boy, Dudley. Ruffled. He ruffled Dudley's hair, and now he sounds like Sean Connery. 
At that moment, the telephone rang and Aunt Petunia went to answer it. While Harry and Uncle Vernon watched Dudley unwrap the racing bike, a video camera, a remote control airplane, 16 new computer games, and a VCR. He was ripping the paper off a gold wristwatch when Aunt Petunia came back from the telephone, looking both angry and worried. Bad news, Vernon, she said. Mrs. Figg's broken her leg. She can't take him. She jerked her, she jerked her head in Harry's direction. Dudley's mouth fell open in horror, but Harry's heart gave a leap. Every year on Dudley's birthday, his parents took him... Oh, his parents took him and a friend out for the day to adventure parks, hamburger restaurants, or the movies. Every year, Harry was left behind with Mrs. Fig, a mad old lady who lived two streets away. Harry hated it there. The whole sm house smelled of cabbage, and Mrs. Fig made him look at photographs of all the cats she had ever owned. Now what? said Aunt Petunia, looking furiously at Harry as though he'd planned this. Harry knew he ought to feel sorry that Mrs. Fig had broken her leg, but it wasn't easy when he reminded himself that it would be a whole year before he had to look at Tibbles, Snowy, Mr. Paws, and Tufty again. We could phone Marge, Uncle Vernon suggested. Don't be silly, Vernon. She hates the boy. The Dursleys often spoke about Harry like this, as though he wasn't there, or rather as though he was something very nasty that couldn't understand them, like a slug. What about, uh, what's her name, your friend Yvonne? On holiday in Majorca. Majorca. Majorca, that's what I said. I know, I'm just, I, I don't know if I know where Majorca is. I don't. Interesting. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Maybe we're saying it wrong. It's possible. <laughs> when I first read it, I read Morocco, but then I was like, that's not right. It's not Morocco. <laughs> what is the, what is this? On holiday in Morocco? Yeah. Well, I guess it could have been Morocco, but no, that definitely says Majorca. Yeah. Snapped Aunt Petunia. You could just leave me here. Harry put in, hopefully. He'd be able to watch what he wanted on television for a change, and maybe even have a go on Dudley's computer. Aunt Petunia looked as though she'd just swallowed a lemon. And when, oh, and come back and find the house in ruins? She snarled. I won't blow up the house, said Harry, but they weren't listening. I suppose we could take him to the zoo, said Aunt Petunia slowly. And leave him in the car. That car's new. He's not sitting in it alone. Dudley began to cry loudly. In fact, he wasn't really crying. It had been years since he really cried. But he knew that if he screwed up his face and wailed, his mother would give him anything he wanted. Dinky Daddy Dums, don't cry. Mummy won't let him spoil your special day. She cried, flinging her arms around him. I don't want him to, to, to come, Dudley yelled between huge pretended sobs. He always spoils everything. Harry shot and he shot Harry a nasty grin through a gap in his mother's arms. Just then the doorbell rang. Oh, good Lord, they're here, said Aunt Petunia frantically, and a moment later, Dudley's best friend, Piers Polkis, walked in with his mother. Piers was a scrawny boy with a face like a rat. He was usually the one who held people's arms behind their backs while Dudley hit them. Dudley stopped pretending to cry at once. Half an hour later, Harry, who couldn't believe his luck, was sitting in the back of the Dursley's car with Piers and Dudley on the way to the zoo for the first time in his life. His aunt and uncle hadn't been able to think of anything else to do with him, but before they left, Uncle Vernon had taken Harry aside. I'm warning you, he had said, putting his large purple face right up to Harry's. I'm warning you, boy. 
any funny business, anything at all, and you'll be in that cupboard from now until Christmas. I'm not going to do anything, said Harry, honestly. But Uncle Vernon didn't believe him. No one ever did. The problem was, strange things often happened around Harry, and it was just no good telling the Dursleys he didn't make them happen. Once, Aunt Petunia had tried coming back, had tried... Tired. Oh, tired of Harry coming back from the barbers looking as though he hadn't been at all, had taken a pair of kitchen scissors and cut his hair so short he was almost bald except for his bangs, which she left to... Hide that horrible scar. Dudley had laughed himself silly at Harry, who spent a sleepless night imagining school the next day, where he was already laughed at for his baggy clothes and taped glasses. Next morning, however, he had gotten up to find his hair exactly how it had been before Petunia had sheared it off. He had been given a week in the cupboard for this. Even though he had tried to explain, he couldn't explain how it had grown back so quickly. Another time, Aunt Petunia had been trying to force him into a revolting old sweater of Dudley's, brown with orange puffballs. The harder she tried to pull it over his head, the smaller it became, until finally it might have fitted a hand puppet, but it certainly wouldn't fit Harry. Aunt Petunia had decided it must have shrunk in the wash, and to his great relief, Harry wasn't punished. On the other hand, he had gotten into terrible trouble for being found on the roof of the school kitchen. Dudley's gang had been chasing him as usual when, as much to Harry's surprise as anyone else's, there he was, sitting on the chimney. The Dursleys had received a very angry letter from Harry's headmistress, telling them Harry had been climbing school buildings. But all he had tried to do, as he shouted at Uncle Vernon through the locked door of his cupboard, was jump behind the big trash cans outside of the kitchen doors. Harry supposed that the wind must have caught him mid-jump. But today there was nothing going to go wrong. It was even worth being with Dudley and Piers to be spending the day somewhere that wasn't school, his cupboard, or Mrs. Fig's cabbage-smelling living room. While he drove, Uncle Vernon complained to Aunt Petunia. He liked to complain about things. People at work, Harry, the council, Harry, the bank, and Harry were just a few of his favourite subjects. This morning, it was motorcycles. Roaring along like maniacs, the young hoodlums, he said as a motorcycle overtook them. I had a dream about a motorcycle said Harry, remembering suddenly. It was flying. Uncle Vernon nearly crashed into the car in front of him. He turned right around in his seat and yelled at Harry with the most, with his face like a gigantic beat with a mustache. Motorcycles don't fly! Dudley and Piers sniggered. I know they don't, said Harry. It was only a dream but he wished he hadn't said anything. If there was one thing that the Dursleys hated even more than asking questions, it was his talking about anything acting in a way it shouldn't, no matter if it was a dream or even a cartoon. They seemed to think he might get dangerous ideas. This is like the whole Pokemon thing all over again, where mothers right. had like a massive panic in 1999 about children summoning demons through Pikachu. Which, for any of you who don't know, that's a very real thing that happens. <laughs> I mean, I think they thought that the Pokemon themselves were yeah. demons because they were... But that you had to commune with monsters. the devil in order to do it. Yeah. I saw a really old like presentation of somebody showing like the outside of the Pokeball and then contrasting it to like a symbol from like a satanic book. It looked absolutely nothing alike. It was literally like the black line that goes around the, like the, the ports, the button thing. If you turn it sideways and then make it sharp on both ends, 
It's like one of the symbols from like Satanism. <laughs> I was like, man, you are you are reaching here. This is this is a world class Olympic level reaching, and it's beautiful. <laughs> All right, back on it. Uh, it was a very sunny Saturday, and the zoo was crowded with families. The Dursleys bought Dudley and Piers large chocolate ice creams at the entrance, and then, because the smiling lady in the van had asked Harry what he wanted before they could hurry him away, they bought him a cheap lemon ice pop. Wasn't bad, either, Harry thought, licking it as they watched a gorilla scratching his head, who looked remarkably like Dudley, except it wasn't blonde. Harry had the best morning he had had in a long time. He was careful to walk a little way apart from the Dursleys so that Dudley and Piers, who were starting to get bored with the animals by lunchtime, wouldn't fall back on their favourite hobby of hitting him. They ate in the zoo restaurant and when Dudley had a tantrum because his knickerbocker glory didn't have enough ice cream on top, Uncle Vernon bought him another and Harry was allowed to finish the first. Harry felt afterward that he should have known it was all too good to last. After lunch, they went to the reptile house. It was cool and dark in there, with lit windows all along the wall. Behind the glass, all sorts of lizards and snakes were crawling and slithering over bits of wood and stone. Dudley and Piers wanted to see huge poisonous cobras and thick man-crushing pythons. Dudley quickly found the largest snake in the place. It could have wrapped around his body twice. It could have wrapped its body twice around Uncle Vernon's car and crushed it into a trash can. But at the moment, it didn't look in the mood. In fact, it was fast asleep. Dudley stood with his nose pressed against the glass, staring at the glistening brown coils. Make it move! He whined as his father, Uncle Vernon, tapped at his father. Uncle Vernon tapped on the glass, but the snake didn't budge. Do it again, Dudley ordered. Uncle Vernon wrapped the glass smartly with his knuckles, and the snake just snoozed on. This is boring, Dudley moaned, and he shuffled away. Harry moved in front of the tank and looked intently at the snake. He wouldn't have been surprised if it had died from boredom itself. No company except stupid people drumming their fingers on the glass, trying to disturb it all day long. It was worse than having a cupboard as a bedroom, where the only visitor was Aunt Petunia hammering on the door to wake you up. At least he got to go visit the rest of the house. The snake suddenly opened its beady eyes. Slowly, very slowly, it raised its head until its eyes were on the level with Harry's. It winked. Harry stared. Then he looked quickly around to see if anyone was watching. They weren't. He looked back at the snake and winked too. The snake jerked its head a little towards Uncle Vernon and Dudley, then raised its eyes to the ceiling. It gave Harry the look that said quite plainly, I get that all the time. The snake is very smart. So I get that all the time. I mean, the snake seems to be biologically very different than snakes because, first of all, they can't hear anything. Second of all, they have no eyelids, so they can't blink or like that like, little, wink that little like, under wink thing that they. It, they can't. <laughs> they literally can't. <laughs> they can feel vibrations. I know. Harry murmured through the glass, though he wasn't sure the snake could hear him. It must be really annoying. The snake nodded vigorously. Where do you come from, anyway? Harry asked. The snake jabbed its tail at a little sign next to the glass. Harry peered at it. Boa constrictor. Brazil. Was it nice there? The boa constrictor jabbed its tail at the sign again and Harry read on. This specimen was bred in the zoo. Oh, I see. So you've never been to Brazil? The snake 
shook his head. A defining, a deafening shout behind Harry made both of them jump. Dudley! Oh, you do it. Go ahead, go, go ahead. Because I think that's Piers, isn't it? Oh, maybe. Dudley! Mr. Dursley! Come and look at this snake! You won't believe what it's doing! Dudley came waddling towards them as fast as he could. Out of the way, you! He said, punching Harry in the ribs. Caught by surprise, Harry fell hard on the concrete floor. What happened next was so fast, no one saw how it happened. One second, Piers and Dudley were leaning right up against... Right up close to the glass. The next, they had leapt back with howls of horror. Harry sat up and gasped as the glass front of the boa constrictor's tank had vanished. The great snake was uncoiling itself rapidly, slithering out onto the floor. People throughout the reptile house screamed and started running for the exits. As the snake slid swiftly past him, Harry could have sworn a low, hissing voice said, Brazil, here I come. Thanks, amigo. I don't know why I suddenly gave him a Spanish accent when he was British a little bit ago. But, you know, it is what it is. I mean, wouldn't he be since it was bred in captivity? He's, yeah, he's, he should. So it'd be like, Seven. Brazil, here I come. Thanks, amigo. <laughs> As the, yeah. the keeper of the reptile house was in shock. But the glass! He kept saying, where did the glass go? Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> the zoo director himself made Aunt Petunia a cup of strong sweet tea while he apologized over and over again. Heroes and Dudley could only gibber. As far as Harry had seen, the snake hadn't done anything except snap playfully at their heels as it passed. But by the time they were all back in Uncle Vernon's car, Dudley was telling them how it had nearly bitten off his leg, while Piers was swearing it had tried to squeeze him to death. But worst of all, for Harry at least, was Piers calming down enough to say, Harry was talking to it, weren't you, Harry? Uncle Vernon waited until Piers was safely out of the house before starting on Harry. He was so angry that he could hardly speak. He managed to say, Go, cupboard, stay, no meals! Before he collapsed into a chair and Aunt Petunia had to run and get him a large brandy. Harry lay in his dark cupboard much later, wishing he had a watch. He didn't know what time it was, and he couldn't be sure the Dursleys were asleep yet. Until they were, he couldn't risk sneaking into the kitchen for some food. He lived with the Dursies, Dursleys almost ten years. Ten miserable years. As long as he could remember, ever since he had been a baby, his parents had died in that car crash. He couldn't remember being in the car crash when his parents had died. Sometimes, when he strained his memory during long hours in his cupboard, he came up with a strange vision, a blinding flash of green light and a burning pain on his forehead. This, he supposed, was the crash, though he couldn't imagine where all the green light came from. He couldn't remember his parents at all. His aunt and uncle never spoke about them, and of course, he was forbidden to ask questions. There were no photographs of them in the house. When he had been younger, Harry had dreamed and dreamed of some unknown relation coming to take him away, but it had never happened. The Dursleys were his only family. Yet sometimes he thought, or maybe hoped, that strangers in the streets seemed to know him. Very strange strangers they were, too. A tiny man in a violet top hat had bowed to him once, while out shopping with Aunt Petunia and Dudley. After asking Harry furiously if he knew the man, Aunt Petunia had rushed them out of the shop without buying anything. A wide-looking old woman dressed in all green had waved merrily at him once on a bus. A bald man in a very long purple coat had actually shaken his hand in the street the other day and then walked away without a word. The weirdest thing about all these people 
was that they all seemed to vanish the second Harry tried to get a closer look. At school, Harry had no one. Everybody knew that Dudley's gang hated that odd Harry Potter with his baggy old clothes and broken glasses, and nobody liked to disagree with Dudley's gang. And so ends chapter two mm. of the Sorcerer's Stone. You had the ring list of it? I did, there was a lot in there. I'm very, uh, <laughs> very dry now. I know, we didn't bring drinks up this time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Nothing to wet the whistle. So one of the things I like, because we're, we're, we're supposed to be trying to be as positive as possible. Um, one of the things I like about this chapter is that it very much sets the stage for Harry's ignorance throughout the next two books. Right. Because it's, it's not necessarily that Harry doesn't believe the things he's told. But... It's that he automatically assumes people are going to lie to him. Because in, 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 in the first book, he gets this huge revelation of, oh, my aunt and uncle have been lying to me my entire life. My parents didn't actually die in this way. And, spoiler alert, if you haven't oh, read the book. God, everything you're talking about right now is spoilers. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> you've had 15 years. At least, almost, yeah, 25 years, isn't it? For the movies, the books came out well before then. Where the books were coming out in the 90s, right? I think, didn't the first one come out in 1998? Something like that. Hang on. It's been a while. It's been a long time. Nineteen ninety-seven was when the first book came out. And then I think after, like maybe the third one, they started making movies. Yeah, right. Releasing movies. right after the publication of the third book was when the first movie came out, which was like two thousand and one, I think, something like that. Two thousand one, two thousand two, somewhere in there. Um, but Harry is. So Harry's going to get a pretty big revelation coming up. Um, for those of you who haven't read the book, we're in spoilers territory now, so I, uh, I'm not going to go too deep in. But what I like is that this, this sets us up for Harry being exposed to things and simultaneously wanting to believe that what he saw was true, but still having this conditioning from the Dursleys to not believe it. Like, no, there's no way that could be true. Like, even after he gets exposed to more fantastic things, he constantly has this notion of, oh, it's probably not true. He's constantly skeptical, and it leads to uh, a lot of small little nuanced things in his character growth over time. It's one of my greatest irritations with Harry Potter, is that because she, she sets it up like this is going to be a good reason for him to constantly be skeptical, but... If you make glass disappear and then a snake says, see you later, homie, I'm going to Brazil. Pretty good evidence that things are not quite what they see. Yeah, but he also, it's, it's hard to come to terms with something you don't understand. I, yeah, I agree. But at the same time, like he, she sets him up to be this child of like whimsy throughout the first couple chapters. Like, oh... The flying motorcycle, the flashing green lights, and the, all of these fantastical things. Like, and he's he's constantly wanting and wishing for more. And then when he gets it, he's got this whole "well, maybe I don't want it" sort of mentality in the way that he's hesitant to believe everything. Which, in in a lot of characters, is good. But it, what it does for Harry Potter is it sets him up to be a very disagreeable. character. Throughout the rest of the books, I don't really remember him being like that, so I guess I'll have to. It, it's and it's not it's not overt, but the the little instances throughout the books where he refuses to see reason or change kind of come back to this moment of revelation that he's going to have over the course of the next three chapters, and this instance right here with the snake 
and with the the Dursleys really overtly hiding things from him. He because the biggest and again this is huge spoilers territory, but the big snap is like in uh, the Order of the Phoenix, when there's all of the secrets being kept from him, and his sort of like unwillingness to accept that a lot of his action is really not necessary for for anything and that him acting the way that he does ends up leading to bad things happening that's as much as i'm going to say on it and it's and it goes back to this moment and when we get there which is going to be like two years from now if we're reading these things linearly <laughs> when we get to the fifth book i'll i'll call back to this moment i'll make sure i like put it in a folder <laughs> call back to order of the Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> so that we so we remember, but it, it's it's very subtle, and I don't know how intentional it was in the character, but this sort of disbelief slash slash distrust issue. Well, he's never had a reason to trust people. Obviously, he could never trust his family and those are the only people that he knew and he never got to go anywhere so he kind of already lives in a bubble to begin with right but that and again like that is the excuse that is used oh not overtly but underlying that is the excuse that is used to restrict his character growth he goes through plenty of stuff that should definitely like, like for any average person regardless of trauma you go through something that spectacular, you kind of just got to go, well, yeah, well, maybe I can change a little bit. <laughs> but the way that she writes him is like, I don't care that I've just flown through here in a flying car and watched dishes do themselves. Skepticism. <laughs> it's just, it's too much. But he's not skeptical of those things. He's not skeptical of those things, but he's skeptical of, like other characters intentions like which is fair because you can be skeptical of anybody's intentions regardless of magic being involved or not right and you should yes i agree okay. but the but a lot of the skepticism and i don't know if skepticism is the right word it's sort of like the the way that she chooses how he will or will not trust other characters mm. really makes no sense in line with any sort of character growth. Like he'll at randomly choose to trust somebody and then that person ends up being like in, again, more spoilers, like when Lockhart's right. Like Harry knows that Lockhart's an idiot, but in the books, more so in the book than the film, because the film made him look like a massive idiot. But in the book, Harry comes to like trust Lockhart a little bit and kind of find him charming. And there's no reason, given like everything else that's gone on up to that point, no reason why that should have happened. I don't remember. It's been a really long time since I read these books. As far as I know, I think like Lockhart had gotten him out of some trouble or he just got really easy detention with him. So he just kind of well, yeah. found him to be more likable. Right. Than he originally thought, but he made him, he was really annoying. Mm hmm So, it, I don't think he fully trusted him. I think he trusted him as much as he would trust a professor. But he doesn't trust most of the other professors as much as he ends up trusting Lockhart. Well, he doesn't trust Snape, and that's because Snape would pick on him a lot. Yeah. For reasons. <laughs> for reasons. For reasons. <laughs> Spoiler. You didn't say spoilers before you said your thing. Now everybody's like, now nobody's, well, everybody's... said spoilers. I said what I was saying was spoilers, and you had previously <laughs> said you were avoiding spoilers. You well, just, not anymore, I already you said You lashed it on them. You just lashed it on them. They're all traumatized now. I'm sorry. None of them are going to trust Nate. I didn't say don't trust him, I'm saying he didn't trust him because he would pick on him. I know, but you've traumatized the viewership now. I mean, I think he didn't trust, was it Professor Trelawney? Yeah, he, he has a hard time trusting Professor Trelawney. Right, and that was because it, there was a lot of, like, she was focused more on, like, the mysticism of divination. Right. And that was something super skeptical for him, because he just thought, like, everything seemed to be doom and gloom all the time. Right? 
Right. I don't think he distrusted any of the other ones. There are points when he distrusts McGonagall and Dumbledore. Well, because he finds out that they knew about him and they were part of taking him to his family's house. Like, they knew he was there. Probably could have known what his situation was and they didn't do anything. For a child that makes that realization, they're going to be like, why did you leave me there? Right. Why did you let me stay with these people that very clearly did not want me, did not and, like me? And again, I get it. <laughs> I, I, I get it, but it is also a lazy excuse for restricting character development. That's, that's all I'm getting at. I don't at. remember, so I'll have to see and, and I will be sure to point it out over and over again. I'm sure you will. <laughs> also, I want to point out that she'd used had-had two more times in this chapter. <laughs> Just as a minor, minor grievance. Yeah. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that is all for this episode of Endless Epic. We thank you for joining us as we turn the page into the world of Harry Potter, or as we like to call it, Ron should have been the protagonist. <laughs> no, he was a great supporting character. But he should have been the protagonist, because <laughs> his story is more interesting. Kind of. He has a more apt and relatable struggle. He does, but that's what made him a really good supporting role. Because Ron dealing with the protagonist's problems would have made the story different. And I don't know if it, it would have gone well. See, because one, one of my issues, one of my big, like, over, under, uh, I guess, underlining issues with a lot of stories is you get this uh, predestined hero tribe mm -hmm. yeah. where it's like, uh, what's the, what's a good example? Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, oh, like Bleach. And for those of you who don't watch anime, Bleach is an anime, it's a pretty good one. Strongly recommend it. But, uh, Ichigo. For the first, like, 400 episodes of Bleach, Ichigo is an incredibly relatable character. He's got great character <laughs> development. <laughs> you say it? Like, I don't know, for the first four chapters of a book. No, but, th but that's my point, though, is that, it, like, it's, it's important that you understand how insulting it is. Okay. Because you like, you're like, oh, wow, here's this average everyday guy who becomes a hero. And then it's like, oh, no, he's not a hero. His dad's an elite hollow, once-in-a-lifetime, super-powerful uh, reaper. And his mother is a super-powerful, once-in-a-lifetime, elite, uh, whatever the other people are who hunt hollows. And he's got a once-in-a-lifetime, yeah, got, got once super-powerful, only-one-of-a-kind hollow spirit that lives inside of him. It's like, okay, cool. So... He's not average every day. He's a predestined hero. But and they, it ruins okay, the okay, entire okay. character arc. But you got to episode 400. I think they probably started running out of content. The, so, so they had so to what make you everything do is you more... Stop. <laughs> more <laughs> you stop. They had to find more shocking things no, and cooler no, 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 things no, no, no. to do. No, no, no. You stop. When you run think, out of things, I would stop. say, you know, maybe stop at episode... 100 even. I don't know why things have to go on for that long. Well, because Bleach, Bleach has about like 40 episodes of filler. So realistically, I think, I don't think it has 400 episodes. I think it's got, I think it's got like three, 300 and something episodes with 25 or 30 episodes of filler. Point is. Point being <laughs> is that it's not until like two thirds through the series mm -hmm. that they reveal all of this. And then they do another 100 episodes or so with him having this. Super unique, special, and and with Harry it ends up being the same way. But he's not, he's not. And that's definitely, more spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely portrayed with this kid. He's just a normal kid. He wants to just live like a normal kid, because he is. The only thing that makes him unique is the fact that he was a victim 
of Voldemort and the way that Voldemort himself and his broken pieces of spirit or whatever you want to call it happen to affect him. He, on his own, is not any spectacular wizard and she never makes him out to be. He's literally just a victim well, no, of circumstances no, well, that, beyond his control. That, that's not true. That is true. There are not, many, the only thing he was exceptional at is riding a broomstick. That's what she said. No. <laughs> Family friendly. Yeah, that's <laughs> what the priest said. I don't know what he wants from me. At the end of the episode, the Duh. kids are asleep. No, they're not. <laughs> no, but my, my, my point, and there are points... Mm-hmm. in the books mm-hmm. and the films where they talk about him being a great wizard and that no point in the films or the books but it's does he do anything worthy of being called a great wizard. No, it's, a, it's, it's completely unfounded. He has courage. He has ego, which gives him that courage. Like, obviously, yeah. he felt like he was special enough that he could go outside the rules and do whatever the heck he wants just because he felt like he needed to and he didn't. Right. Everything that he and his friends did very simply could have been handled by the adults. But his ego, which is also a product of everything around him, drove him to do the things that he did. But he wasn't a great wizard. He's called a great wizard because people thought that he killed someone. Right. But he didn't. Well, we've covered the whole series, guys. This is the last episode. Uh, we'll see you for the next season. <laughs> But we kind of did things, go through the, the entire series. The things that happened to him needed to happen because it's the way that a lot of, like you said, lazy protagonists are treated for story progression. But Ron was a great supporting character because he provided conflict that the protagonist needed. He provided camaraderie that the protagonist needed. Like, he needed a sense of family from somebody, and he got a lot of that from Ron and Ron's family. Right. So, well, and that's kind of what I mean, is, like, he ends up with this pseudo-family yeah. through the uh, through the Weasleys and through a couple of the teachers at school and through Hermione, and he, he very much ends up, and with his Quidditch team later on, like, those people he, all ends, he ends up being incredibly close with. Right. And I, I, one of the things that irritates me about, one, the way she wrote the books, and two, the way that the films, is that it really plays down Harry's relationship with his Quidditch team. Because there's a lot of favors that uh, Woods does for him in the mm-hmm. books that help him progress through his, his story. And Woods is just kind of like this throwaway character from the first Sadly, movie. Sadly, yeah. And Oliver Wood is a great character, too. Spectacular, yeah. yeah. Definitely should have had more of an integral part in in Harry's growth um, in this new world that he's found himself in. But, you know, movies have to be cut down, so... No, they don't. Lord they, of the Rings didn't. Oh, I know, and they're brilliant, and I love them, and I watch the extended <laughs> all the time. But, for general populace, they have to cut it down. It would have been great if there had been a director's cut that had a lot more of the missing... Well, story, I, I think so, and this is off-topic entirely, I think that the way films should be made, especially if they're based on books, is you should have a cinematic release, like a, th- a theatrical release, and that can be a shorter version of the film that is an hour and a half, two hours long, that covers the, ba- like the, the, the necessary bones of the story. And then every non-theatrical release should be three to four hours long of the full story from the book. Well, they wouldn't have done that with most everything that gets adapted from a book, but they could have with this series. Because once they realized that the series was definitely going to make money, they absolutely could have put the resources into it. But in any other instances, they're not going to say, yes, let's put all this money into the production to create this other version with more content, because it would have been so... I agree, but it's not like the movies weren't making the money to justify it. And that's what I mean. Like, yes, they could have done that with this. But, but the problem the problem with the Harry Potter movies is that they get lazier as they go along. 
They do. Like, the production quality gets better, but it does get lazier, and I think that's mainly because they still tried to keep a similar length to the movies, but the books had more content. Yeah. The books get thicker and thicker as the volumes go along, so it starts to become very rushed. It feels like there's stuff missing. Well, yeah, because movie one and two feel... They have a similar feel to their books. There's right. some very clear things that are obvious and left out. But as you guys are going to notice if you've seen the movie, for this book, it's pretty much blow for blow what you see in the film. The book is... There are a few key things, and we'll point that out, that get left out. But for the most part, the, the book movie, they parallel pretty perfectly with each other. And then you only get about 80% of the second book in the second movie. Mm-hmm. They, they leave out a, a pretty good chunk, but it was, again, necessary for... The, and they didn't cut out anything that was going to break the film. Right. But then when you get to the third one, like, I would say they, they barely get 60% of the third book into the movie. Right. And it, and like, I and think it, that was the first one that got frustrating for me. Yeah. Watching it, because there's a lot of people like that was their favorite at that point. Well, and Prisoner of Azkaban is one of the best books in the series. It is. And a lot of people enjoy the, that movie more, too. But I was just like, but they made it so confusing and convoluted. And it was missing some really important parts. Well, and, and the, one, the one book in the series that I will give to Rowling that she wrote really well was the third one. Goblet of Fire didn't have the mastery... Uh, Half-Blooded Prince didn't have Order of the Phoenix didn't have it. Half-Blooded Prince didn't have it. Deathly Hollows didn't have it. There I, was a lot of... I liked Goblet of Fire, though, because... Well, Goblet of Fire, in my opinion, was the last good book in the series. Yeah, there was a lot of really fun things in there, but it started to become... It started to push more towards the more serious... Things. Which is which is fine, but it also cut out a lot of the whimsy that made it spectacular. But they still, they still had a lot of whimsy because all of the the tests that they had to go through for the Goblet of Fire, yeah, trials. Uh, but right. the but in in the in that book, it felt forced. Like the Goblet of Fire trials, to me, it felt like she was putting in whimsical things just to have them in there not because they were pertinent to her. and it well, was fine yeah. it worked like the book itself was fun and but the problem is is that it was followed up with order of the phoenix which had almost none of that i would imagine that at this point she had no idea how far she was going to be taking these books and this right. and the story she had no idea that it was going to blow up the way that it did. That she had no idea she would eventually ruin it with the cursed child. And then, like, <laughs> and that she was going to have to like keep up with a much tighter schedule because she was going to have to try to keep up with the releases of these movies. You know, you have these kids playing the the characters. You got a limited amount of time. Older. Yeah, you got to get the get the books out right. So, I mean, if I was an author in that position. It would be really hard to balance everything out and to maintain that that fun aspect of like writing it because you love to ru- to write it. It became probably just a job. Did you hear that Universal wants to reboot Harry Potter? Yes, they were waiting for the anniversary so they could redo them. Which is just nuts. I know. I, I like... think they have to wait. What is it? Twenty-two years or twenty? I, I don't know, but any which way, like... There's, like, a certain amount of years they have to wait before a remake can be done. And I'm like, well, of course they're going to remake those movies. They're going to be awful. Oh, I'm sure that they will be. <laughs> but it's not going to stop them from doing it, because it's still going to create a huge income we, flow, so. we need to get through this podcast <laughs> before all the Harry Potter fans start hating Harry Potter because of the reboot of the films. Well, I don't know that they'll hate Harry Potter. They just will probably... If if they ever reboot Lord of the Rings, I will be angry. There might be a better Harry, though. Okay, because uh, Radcliffe's eyes were the wrong color, right? I don't know. And nothing really against Daniel Radcliffe. Like, I think he was fine. He actually did play the character. It's just like you said, the character himself is not super interesting. 
just the things that he experiences and the world that he goes into is interesting. But it doesn't mean that they couldn't find the right uh, actor to portray that character and make him more interesting. I don't know. It's well, possible. Well, like, uh, Rupert Grint, I think, is the perfect role. Oh, yeah. He was the perfect Ron. And the, and the, he was cast really well. Neville was cast really well. The twins. Twins. The twins were virtually perfect. Right. Uh, most of them were. Most of them were. So it is going to be really hard to top the, the old movies because you can't replace those, those actors. Well, but and my, my the production quality will probably be better. It'll be a lot better. Yeah, I, just, I don't know. It's just there's so much that could be done to improve upon it that I, I know they're not going to do any of it. It won't outweigh how it's going to get ruined. Yeah. Because it will. It will get ruined. I mean, it's like, just just as, as an example, Thor Love and Thunder is based off of a comic book series run called Thor the Unworthy and, um, and Gore the God Butcher. And I've been told that um, Christian Bale's performance as Gore the God Butcher is spectacular, but it's he's the only good actor. thing about the film. Yeah, he's a great actor. And it's, it's awful. It's like, I didn't like Infinity War. And I didn't like Civil War, and I didn't like. I I mean, I think that Endgame. Why are watching Civil War? It, it's it's not worth watching. Like literally everything that happens at the beginning, everything that happens at the beginning is undone at the end, so it's a pointless movie. Mm. But Endgame is probably one of the best and most well-made films in the series. But the the it all ruins. A lot of the uh, of Secret Wars. Another re now they're redoing Secret Wars, which is a series of comic books where the the Thrall or Kroll Kroll I think, uh, which are these like metamorphosis creatures, take the place of all the heroes on Earth, hmm. and kidnap the heroes and lock them up on their planet. So it's like a really terribly fascinating comic book run, and they ruined it, and. Thor the Unworthy is the story of Thor becoming unworthy of the hammer and then uh, him not having the hammer, getting uh, Stormbreaker from Beta Ray Bill and they didn't put Beta Ray Bill in Love and Thunder, which is a flipping crime. A crime, I tell you. I love how this became about Marvel. Keep going. Right. <laughs> and Gore the God Butcher is supposed to kill almost all all of the gods until finally he gets to old man Thor and Thor basically holds out for a really really long time against Gore the God Butcher. Is this when he was still dressing shirtless and wearing some kind of weird helmet on his forehead? No, no, this is after. <laughs> this is after? This is, yeah, this is, a re this is a relatively recent run of comic books. Oh, okay. And, and, and it was um, Thor the Unworthy led into Jane Foster becoming, becoming Thor, becoming worthy of Thor. She gets cancer and her having cancer from being around Thor kind of like gives her this more altruistic spirit and she becomes worthy of the hammer as Thor becomes unworthy. It's kind of weird. I don't remember exactly how she became worthy. It's sort of like shoehorned in there so that they could do like girl power Thor um, but the rest of it is really good. Okay. That bit is poorly written, but the rest of it is really good. So, again, just tying it right back to forced scenarios for protagonists to justify how the storyline goes. Yeah, and, and it's in... It, yeah, the whole thing is just awful. And, and, and Taika Waititi, and, because Taika Waititi is, is, is a brilliant director, I think he makes a lot of good stuff, but... Him and the other guy who made Thor and Love and Thunder, from everything I've understood, they completely misunderstood what people found funny about Thor Ragnarok. And like they usually do, like they'll find something that they think works, they'll grab it and run with it. The only part I remember about that movie is Jeff Goldblum. That's all you need to remember. Because that's the best he's part. He's right. He's usually a great source of, of comedy in whatever he's in. But that's Wait, hang all on. I remember. Hang on. By the I way, remember an angsty Valkyrie. Have have you ever seen the movie of Jeff Goldblum 
as the big bad wolf and the three little pigs. What? Okay, I'm re- I'm gonna show a clip if you're on if you're on the video podcast. I'm gonna show a clip, and then you we're gonna go downstairs and watch this because <laughs> it is one of the best things Goldblum has ever done. He that sounds interesting. He had a show for a while, but I don't think that it did really well because they made his character a little like jaded and more serious Mm. so like a lot of his snarky comedy like it was just too heavy that like you couldn't enjoy him being funny there's just oh god there's no okay we're gonna end (laughs) because <laughs> I'm just going to get into the lack of integrity of storytelling. Is this for who, who the Vec asked you podcast? Yeah, no kidding. Ugh. But yeah, it's just, there's, so, there's so little integrity in storytelling anymore that it's, it's just a tragedy. Yeah. It's awful. It's and it, it's, it's bothersome. At the, very, at the very minimum, it's bothersome. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for, uh, once again, this step into the world of Harry Potter. Uh, big shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon. Um, if you are not supporting on Patreon, you get the podcast a week to two weeks early, as well as a plethora of other things having to do with my lore content, as well as my uh, fiction lore content, as well as the books that I'm writing. It is literally a hodgepodge of everything that I'm working on all the time, um, either early or exclusively. And if you want to support the Tavern and Endless Epic in a more intimate way, Patreon or even uh, memberships over on YouTube are a great way to do it. And uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for reading along with us. And uh, once again, thank you to my lovely co-hosts, the mighty and indomitable Faye. Um, And uh, we hope you will join us next time that we turn the page. So until next time, my friends, stay bloodthirsty. And remember, all hail the Black Dragon. We'll see you guys then. Bye.